All right, let this time invite our little ones among us. You guys can be dismissed to head out to your time together in our kids' ministry. You can head in that direction. And while they're doing that, uh, let me invite the rest of you to grab your Bibles and find your way to Judges chapter 9. It is good to be back with you this morning. Last weekend, I had the pleasure of of officiating a wedding of some of our friends in the church. Uh, Carolyn Coglin and Ash Patel got married, and we're excited for them. And I would encourage you to be praying for them as they start their new life together. We recognize in our church that marriage is designed by God to serve as a living illustration of the gospel, and so marriage is incredibly, incredibly important, and so we want to pray for healthy marriages among us. We want to nurture healthy marriages where deference and delight is being shared between husband and wife, and they're illustrating the beauty of the gospel and how they relate to one another. And with that said, I would also uh, remind you that as a church, when we talk about marriage, we also want to affirm singleness among us because we do not believe that singleness is in any way incompleteness, uh, that singleness is a unique life stage that God can endow and empower and bless in some tremendous ways as a single person has the opportunity to showcase the efficiency of Jesus, the enoughness of Jesus. And so uh, we, as we pray for married couples among us, we also want to pray for the singles among us that they would find their soul satisfaction and their contentment in Christ, uh, what it, regardless of what stage of life they may be in. And so we want to be praying for uh, our marriages and our single persons, really praying for everyone in the life of our Church. And uh, so here in Judges chapter 9, we're going to be picking up where we left off last. If you've just joined us this morning, we're in the middle of a study of the book of Judges. We're kind of walking through all the stories that are cataloged here in this book. And last week, uh, Bryant served us well by uh, reminding us of God's surprising deliverance. He taught us from the second half of Gideon's story. And it may have, if you're familiar with Gideon's story, as you've been journeying with us, it may have given you whiplash. Uh, Gideon's story can kind of do that because when we first meet Gideon in, in the book of Judges, he's kind of a fearful, insecure uh, man who's reluctant to obey God, yet God, by his grace, would overcome his reluctance and call him into his service. God would then empower him to uh, deliver the people of Israel from these external oppressors, and it's a wonderful, triumphant moment. But the second half of his, study, of his story is not so much so. It kind of goes downhill. Because what you find in the second half of Gideon's story is that he kind of grows into an arrogant and self-centered man. And although he rejected the title of king, he still related to people as such, and he expected to be treated as such, which is why he, he requires a financial tribute from the people of Israel. And it also means why he kind of created a memorial that people would idolize and that they would worship. And then you consider his lifestyle toward the end of his life, and his lifestyle followed more the values of Canaanite kings than the people of Israel. Because you have a man who had many wives and he had 70 kids. You know, a mentor once asked me that how high can God lift you before he loses you? How high can God lift you before he loses you? Someone should have asked Gideon that question. God lifted him high, but rather than being humbled by God's grace in his life and through his life, he became haughty and he kind of lost his way in the end. And when we step into Judges chapter 9, we're stepping into a cautionary tale concerning one of Gideon's sons, a guy by the name of Abimelech. And this is a cautionary tale that shows us that kind of the, the bad seeds that Gideon sown toward the end of his life, it began to bear fruit in his kid's life, in this particular guy's life, a guy by the name of Abimelech. Now, Abimelech was the son of Gideon's concubine, and what you're going to find in this story is that this apple does not fall too far from the tree. 
Like his father late in life, he wants to be treated as a king, but he's a little bit more ambitious than Gideon because he doesn't just want the treatment as king. He wants the title of king, and he seeks to carve out his own mini kingdom in the city of Shechem. And so we're going to read through this story. It's kind of a lengthy story, so I'm going to kind of run us through the story. Then on the back end, I'm going to identify uh, the kind of what this story means for us and why I believe it is a cautionary tale for every generation of God's people that reads it. And here we read in verse 1. This is how it begins. It says, Abimelech, son of Jeroboam. Remember that Jeroboam is another name for Gideon. That's who that is. It says that Abimelech went to Shechem and spoke to his uncles and to his mother's whole clan saying, please speak in the hearing of all the citizens of Shechem. Is it better for you that 70 men, all the sons of Jerubbaal, rule over you, or that one man rule over you? Remember that I am your own flesh and blood. Here, Abimelech begins to prove himself to, to be the shrewd politician, that he's very shrewd in this moment. He goes to his mother's side of the family, and he appeals to their self-interest. He says, is it better for you? This is what politicians do. Politicians know who they're talking to. And in order to gain a hearing, they will appeal to the self-interest of those who are listening to them. This is what Abimelech proves to be in this moment, and he is successful. He rallies their support. Verse 3, his mother's relatives spoke all these words about him in the hearing of all the citizens of Shechem. And they were favorable to Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. And so they decide to fund his campaign, so to speak. They gave him 70 pieces of silver from the temple of Baal Berith. And Abimelech used it to hire worthless and reckless men. And they followed him. He went to his father's house in Oprah. That's not to be confused with the talk show host. Uh, There was a house in a place called Oprah and and killed his 70 brothers, the sons of Jerobel, on top of a large stone. So not only do we see something about uh, Abimelech's political skill, we're also learning something about his ambition. Abimelech was a man who wanted power. He wanted prestige. And he's willing to do anything to seize it, even if that means committing fratricide, which is what he does. He murders his siblings. Now, prior to this point, all the conflicts that we've seen in Judges have been external conflicts. It's been Israel against external oppressors like the Midianites or the Moabites or the Canaanites. But now Israel is turning on herself. This is an internal struggle. And much like many internal struggles, whether they take place within the government or they take place within the workplace or they take place within your own homes, much, many internal conflicts concern this issue of power. It's this matter of who's in charge, who's calling the shots, who is setting the agenda. That tends to be what causes internal conflicts among groups, and that is the case here. You see, after Gideon died, his, he, along with uh, his 70 sons, kind of ruled different parts of the promised land. They were ruled different cities, different regions, and they were to work together in their rulership. But here, Abimelech wants to consolidate power. He wants to consolidate power starting in the city of Shechem, where he could rule without accountability rule without accountability, and then soon expand his power over the other cities and the other places in the promised land. And so what he does is he hires uh, some mercenaries, and he goes and he slaughters his own brothers. But there was one brother who survived, a guy by the name of Jotham. And we meet Jotham here in verse uh, 7. When we, I'm sorry, at the end of verse 5, it says, But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, survived because he hid. Then all the citizens of Shechem and of Beth Milo gathered together and proceeded to make Abimelech king at the oak at the pillar of Shechem. 
So Abimelech becomes king, and when Jotham finds out, he's not very excited about it. So he decides to speak out against the people's decision. He's like, look, you guys have chosen the wrong guy to be your ruler, and he's calling everybody to an account. And, but he, so he kind of wants to get that message out. He wants to address the people, but he can't just fire off a social media post from a safe distance. He can't, that's not how the world works. So he does the next best thing. What he decides to do is he climbs to the top of Mount Gerizim and he kind of gets in position where his voice can be amplified and many people can hear what he has to say. But he's also in a position that once they hear what he has to say, he can get his message out before his brother's henchmen climb up the mountain to silence him and to get him to stop. So it's actually a brilliant move for him to go up to the top of this mountain and to deliver a prophetic word in the form of a fable. This is essentially what he does, beginning in verse 8. Listen to what he says. He says, listen to me, citizens of Shechem, and may God listen to you. The trees decided to anoint a king over themselves. They said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive trees said to them, should I stop giving my oil that people use to honor both God and men and rule over the trees? Then the trees said to the fig tree, come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, should I stop giving my sweetness and my good fruit and rule over trees? Later, the trees said to the grapevine, come and reign over us. But the grapevine said to them, should I stop giving my wine that cheers both God and man and rule over trees? Finally, all the trees said to the bramble, come and reign over us. The bramble said to the trees, if you really, you really are anointing me as king over you, come and find refuge in my shade. But if not, may fire come out from the bramble and consume the cedars of Lebanon. So here in this fable, you've got four objects. You have an olive tree, a fig tree, a grapevine, and a bramble. Now, a bramble is a thorny shrub. It's kind of like the blueberry bushes that you see sprawling out across our region. They don't grow very tall, and they have thorns. And uh, this, when you read through the fable, you find the olive tree and the fig tree and the grapevine are very productive. They're all contributing to the flourishing of others. They all have something, and they are doing something to help those that are coming to them. First, you consider olive trees. Olive trees produce oil used for cooking and medicine and lubrication. It was used to soften leather back in the day. It was used to provide fuel for for, uh, lanterns, and it would also be used to create perfumes and other elements that were used in people's worship services. So an olive tree was contributing to the flourishing of others. Then you consider the fig tree. The fig tree, obviously, figs are edible. (laughs) They're eaten and they are enjoyable. They can be made into cakes. They're oftentimes turned into wine or used as a sweetener. But then you have the vineyard, and vineyards, we're told, provide cheerful wine. And so since they were already serving others, they were already contributing to the flourishing of others, they each turned down the request to become king, but then comes the bramble. And the bramble's description provides the point of this fable. Notice what goes down. The bramble makes a promise that it can't keep. The bramble says, if you are anointing me as king over you, come and find refuge in my shade. Now, no one seeks refuge in a bramble. Brambles are too short and they're too thorny. They're uncomfortable. You're not going to take refuge in this type of object. But then there is a a threat. He says, if you don't make, if you're not making me king over you, I'm going to destroy you. Fire will come out of me and consume me, consume you. Now, brambles were highly flammable. They were the cause of a lot of regional fires back in the day when lightning would strike or something would occur. They would burn easily. And so what you have in this fable is Jotham is pointing out that in their selection of a king, the people of Israel were settling for a bramble. 
They settle for an unqualified king. An unqualified king whose character wasn't worthy of the title and whose character would not be worthy of the treatment. And what you're going to find in the rest of the story is that Abimelech is arrogant and he is delusional. He thinks too highly of himself and makes promises that he cannot keep. You're also going to find that Abimelech is highly flammable. He has a dangerous temper. And he will use force even against his own people. You see, Abimelech cares for no one other than himself. He wants to be the king for the sake of being king, not for the sake of other people flourishing. So the people of Israel are are settling here. Now, before this moment in the book of Judges, every leader has been called by God and empowered by God and endorsed by God. Here, that is not the case. God does not call Abimelech. God does not endorse Abimelech. God does not affirm Abimelech. God does not appoint him as king, as ruler, as leader in any discernible way. And notice what Jotham says next in verse 16. He says, now if you have acted faithfully and honestly in making Abimelech king, if you have done well by Jerobel and his family, meaning if you've made a good choice, and if you have rewarded him appropriately for what he did, for my father fought for you, risked his life, and rescued you from Midian, and now you have attacked my father's family today, killed his 70 sons on top of a large stone, and made Abimelech, the son of his slave woman, king over the citizens of Shechem, because she is your brother. So if you have acted faithfully and honestly with Jeroboam, meaning if you're doing this with respect to Gideon and his house, then rejoice in Abimelech, and may he also rejoice in you. But obviously that's not the case. They did not honor Gideon and his family. In fact, they slaughtered Gideon's family. But then he goes on, but if not, may fire come from Abimelech and consume the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo. And may fire come from the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo and consume Abimelech. So here you have this guy named Jotham. He's another son of Gideon. His name essentially means God is perfect. And he steps up and he's basically dropping a curse on the people. He drops a curse on Abimelech and he drops a curse on the people who would appoint him king and look to him for leadership. And that's very important because this curse that Jotham speaks in the form of this fable is what's going to drive the rest of the plot forward. Everything that happens will happen according to this word, according to this curse. And when you jump into the next text, Abimelech rules for three years. For three years, Abimelech ruled unchecked. But then there comes a moment when God sends an evil spirit between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem. And they begin to treat Abimelech deceitfully. In other words, there was a contingent of citizens who wanted justice for the brothers that were slaughtered. And so they began to rebel against Abimelech. They sought to disrupt life throughout the city, creating insecurity and anarchy in the city. Listen to what he says, verse 25. That this contingent put men in ambush on the tops of the mountains, and they robbed everyone who passed by them on the road. Then when you get to verse 26, we're introduced to a new character, a guy by the name of Gaal. Now Gaal entered the city with his brothers, and not long after doing so, he threw a rager. Uh, They had a party. They drank a lot of wine. They got drunk. And consumed by this liquid courage, kind of loosened his tongue, and he started talking smack against Abimelech. He began to threaten Abimelech. Listen to what he says in verse 26. Who is Abimelech, and who is Shechem, that we should serve him? Isn't he the son of Jerubbaal, and isn't Zebel his officer? You are to serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Why should we serve Abimelech? If only these people were in my power, I would remove Abimelech. He's kind of puffing his chest, he's slurring his speech, and he's talking smack about the king. 
liquid courage. So he said to Abimelech, gather your army and come out. He's challenging the king. But there was another guy there, a guy by the name of Zebel. Zebel was one of Abimelech's chief officers. And he heard this and he sent word to Abimelech that Gaal was turning the city against him. And so he advised Abimelech to send troops in and to put a stop to it. And that night, that's what Abimelech did. He rallied four units of troops and he sent them into the city. But by that time, Gael began to sober up and he began to realize what he's just done. And so he doesn't want any part of Abimelech. He doesn't want to fight him. So he starts trying to backtrack. But, but Zebul won't let him. And look at verse 38. Zebul kind of prods the moment, kind of throws gasoline on the fire. And he says, what do you have to say now? You said, who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Aren't these the troops you despise? Now go and fight them. So he kind of calls Gale out, and Gale has no choice. Abimelech is there, and they're going to throw down. Needless to say, though, Gale didn't put up much of a fight. Abimelech and his troops swarmed in and beat Gale, and his brothers really drove them from the city. But by this time, Abimelech's already mad. The, the bramble's already been ignited with fire, and his anger is raging at this point in time. And so although he drove the threat out, he's still mad. And notice what he does in verse 45. He then turns and he attacks other citizens of the city. Verse 45, Abimelech fought against the city that entire day, captured it and killed the people who were in it. Then he tore down the city and he sowed it with salt. Now that was a particularly cruel move because salt would render the land infertile. Basically, this guy Abimelech, in rage and anger, he laid waste to the city he was supposed to rule. And all of a sudden, nobody is flourishing. Everybody is floundering because of this guy's arrogance and his anger. But then it gets even worse because the remaining citizens who were in the city, they kind of shored up in a tower. And Abimelech took an axe and he chopped off some branches from a tree and he told his soldiers, hey, do the same thing. Grab some branches and say, I'll collect a bunch of wood and branches. And they come to the tower and they place the branches around the tower, set it on fire, burning everyone in the tower alive. And we are told that about a thousand men and women perished that day. So you have this bramble on fire, this arrogant and angry king. He's emboldened by this quote-unquote victory, and he decides to go after another city. He kind of feels like he has a win under his belt. Now it's time for him to expand his power and to seize control of more territories. So verse 50, Abimelech went to Thebes, camped against it, and captured it. There was a strong tower inside the city, and all the men, women, and citizens of the city fled there. They locked themselves in and went up to the roof of the tower. When Abimelech came to attack the tower, he approached its entrance to set it on fire. Again, his rage is burning. But we're told a woman, a nameless woman, threw the upper portion of a millstone on Abimelech's head and fractured his skull. So in the midst of the madness of that moment, this unnamed woman steps up and she picks up a large piece of mechanical equipment. She throws it over the edge out the window of the tower and it just so happens to fall on Abimelech's head, fracturing his skull. And as he lays dying, understand that he's still only thinking of himself. This is why he is such an arrogant, self-absorbed person. He's only thinking of, his, of himself and his reputation. Verse 54, he quickly called his armor bearer and said to him, draw your sword and kill me. Draw your sword and kill me. Or they'll say about me, a woman killed me. He didn't want that. He didn't want his reputation to go down like that. So even in death, he's only thinking about himself. Even in death, he's only thinking about his reputation. Sure enough, the, the 
armor bearer followed his orders and speared him through, and he died, and after he died, everyone went home. Then you get to verse 56, and this becomes the commentary. Verse 56 becomes the insight. This is the, the interpretation of all that's just transpired, and it sets the key for the whole chapter. Verse 56. It says, In this way, God brought back Abimelech's evil, the evil that Abimelech had done to his father when he killed his 70 brothers. God also brought back to the men of Shechem all their evil. So the curse of Jotham, son of Jeroboam, came upon them. Upon them. And so you get to the end of this story, and we find here a cautionary tale. And what's interesting is that this story sits at the centerpiece of the book of Judges. Like it's in the middle section, the center point of the whole narrative of the book of Judges. This story sits at the center. And so right here in the middle of this book is this cautionary tale, and it warns us about several things. And I want to issue a few words of caution to us this morning and encourage you to think through them for yourself and for our church and for our city and ultimately for the world. And the first cautionary word concerns our ambition. There is a cautionary word here regarding ambition. Now, ambition in and of itself is not a bad thing. In fact, there are certain ambitions that are highly encouraged in scriptures, in the scriptures. There are things that you and I, as followers of Jesus, as a church here in the city of Seattle, there are things we should be ambitious about. I'll give you a few examples. You consider Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. Be ambitious about your service to Jesus. But then Ephesians chapter 6, serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people. Proverbs 21, 21, whoever pursues righteousness and unfailing love, be ambitious in your pursuit of righteousness and unfailing love. You will find life, righteousness, and honor. Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And there he's, Jesus is referring to provision and sustenance for you. You're going to be taken care of. You just worry about the kingdom of God. Romans 15, Paul expresses his ambition to get the gospel to people who have yet to hear it. Romans 15, verse 20, my aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named so that I will not build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who are not told about him will see, and those who, will, who have not heard will understand. He's ambitious about getting the gospel out. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim, we make it our ambition to be pleasing to God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. These are just a few of the examples of things we should be ambitious about. We should be ambitious in our service to Jesus. We should be ambitious in our desire to see the kingdom of God advanced throughout the world. This is what D.A. Carson is getting after when he makes that statement. As Christians, we are called upon to put the advance of the gospel in the very center of our aspirations. That the gospel should occupy the functional center of our ambitions, of our desires, of our aspirations. He asks, what are your ambitions or your aspirations? To make money? To get married? To see your grandchildren grow up? Find a new job? None of these are inadmissible. None is to be despised. The question is whether these aspirations or these ambitions become so devouring that the Christian's central aspiration is squeezed to the periphery or choked out of existence entirely. 
So where is the gospel? How does it sit in your ambitions? How, where does it sit in relation to your aspirations as you journey through this world? You see, our story tonight prevents Abimelech, or this morning presents Abimelech as the embodiment of selfish ambition. The only agenda he sought to advance in the world was his own. The only kingdom he wanted to carve out in the world was the kingdom of self. He had no concern for the kingdom of God, no concern for the glory of God, no concern for a holy ambition. You have in Abimelech a the embodiment of a self-centered, self-absorbed ambition. And what happened in the end of the story is that everybody suffered. He suffered and everybody around him suffered because he was so selfish in his ambitions. So I would encourage you to ask, in light of this story, whose kingdom are you advancing in this world? Whose kingdom are you really concerned with? Are you just trying to carve out a kingdom for yourself so that everything centers around you and your pleasures and your desires and your pursuits? Or... Are you centering your life around the kingdom of God, the one kingdom that's actually going to last forever and always? Are you advancing the kingdom of self or the kingdom of God? Are you concerned for your own glory or the glory of God? One of those isn't worth much, but one of those is worth a whole lot. So if you're going to be ambitious about anything, be ambitious about the gospel. Be ambitious about the kingdom of God. Be ambitious about your relationship to Jesus. So there's a cautionary word here regarding our ambition. Is our ambition holy or is our ambition haughty? Is it God-centered or self-centered? Is it kingdom advancing, kingdom of God advancing, or kingdom of self advancing? We have to wrestle with that question in our hearts, and we have to evaluate our lives in light of this story. But then there's a second word of caution, a cautionary word concerning leadership. A word of caution concerning leadership. In Jotham's fable, we find that the first priority of leadership, the first priority of leaders who would honor God and follow Jesus, the first priority of our leadership should be the flourishing of others. That should be our concern. We should be concerned about how everyone around us is flourishing and how everyone around us are doing. That's the concern of Christian, kingdom, Bible-oriented leadership. This is why when you come to the parable, what happens you have the olive tree, the fig tree, and the grapevine, and they were already leading others to flourish. They were already leading. They were already doing the things that God would have them do, and people were flourishing as a result. But the bramble, the bramble wasn't. In fact, the bramble was incapable of doing that because it did not possess the right constitution. It did not possess the right makeup to carry forth a concern that says, I want to see other people flourish. The bramble could not serve as a refuge for other people. It was too small. It was too thorny. And the bramble could not, uh, and also the bramble was highly flammable. And you know that as you read through the story that the bramble represents Abimelech and, and really represents anyone else who would aspire to lead, but in their aspiration to lead, they lack the necessary constitution. They lack the necessary components. And there's two components of leadership that must be held together in our desire to lead. And those two components, this two, these two constitutions concern our competency and our character. Competency and character must be wed together in our approach to leadership. Now, Abimelech was a competent guy. He was politically savvy. He was a powerful guy. He, could, he was ruthless. He could seize power over the city, which he successfully did, at least for a time. But he lacked character. He lacked substance of heart. He lacked virtue. Now, I want us to think about this idea of competency and character and apply it to a couple of areas of leadership in 
in our lives and around us, the first area of leadership concerns socio-political leadership. I want us to think about this in light of socio-political leadership. If you remember, Abimelech was chosen because he appealed to people's self-interest. He told people what they wanted to hear rather than what they needed to hear. Now, he may have been politically competent, but his character was corrupt, and that was a huge problem. I appreciate Pope Francis' observation when he says the more powerful you are, that is the more influence you have, the more people you are leading, the more powerful you are, the more your actions will have an impact on people. The more reasonable you are, to, the more responsible you are to act humbly. If you don't, your power will ruin you and you will ruin the other. There's a saying in Argentina that power is like drinking gin on an empty stomach. You feel dizzy, you get drunk, you lose your balance, and you end up hurting yourself and those around you. If you don't connect your power, your influence, your leadership with humility and tenderness, he's saying, look, competency without character is dangerous. And you see this in Abimelech's story. His power was unbridled. His power was disconnected from a virtuous character. And everyone, everyone in the story suffers as a result. So this story wisely warns us about what we should look for in socio-political leadership. It provides some wisdom and some bearings on what we should look for in those that we, we choose and those that we look to lead us. And I think what the story would inform the Christian is that we must not choose leaders on the basis of apparent competencies alone. This story reminds us that the character of our leaders matters. We cannot ignore flawed character in the election of leaders. If we do, we're setting ourselves up for some difficult days. We're setting ourselves up from some, for some dangerous, some dangerous times. And so let me ask you, when you are voting or when you are thinking about electing leaders or looking to leaders to, to have influence in your life or influence in government or whatever the case may be, do you consider those you are voting for or those you are looking to, do you really consider them to be trustworthy? And let me ask you to consider how important is that question to you? When you're evaluating candidates, how important is the question, do you consider them to be trustworthy? Does that really weigh sway in your approach? And if you do believe them to be trustworthy, the question then is why? What is the evidence? What are you looking to that has convinced you that this person not only is competent, but this person is, has high character? So we want to think about that question, but we also want to consider in this, are we only, when we approach that whole process, are we only considering politicians, leaders who appeal to our self-interests? You remember, that's what Abimelech did. He appealed to the self-interest of a certain segment of society to the neglect of everybody else. Those people loved that, and so they pursued that. They said, yes, we want this guy because he's appealing to our self-interest. And so I think this story would cause us to ask the question, are we only considering leaders who appeal to our self-interest, who tell us what we want to hear rather than what we may need to hear, who make promises that they might not be able to keep because they ignore practical realities, offering simplistic solutions to complicated situations? When we when voting or when we're looking for leadership, we must consider what a politician's policies mean, not just for us, but for those around us. This is the burden of Christians. This is the burden for the Christian in a democratic society. You cannot vote on the basis of your self-interest alone. You must consider what policies mean for those who are ethnic minority, in the ethnic minorities. You must consider what poli how policies are going to affect those who are not in your demographic. You have to consider the impact policies are going to have on people who are not like you. That's the burden of the Christian in this world. 
We do not look out for our own self-interest. We are called to consider the interests of others. We must take care and we must pursue things that will help not just ourselves, but help the most people around us, including those who are not like us. I think there's a lot of thought, a lot of things we must consider in light of this, of this story. So you want to ask yourself, what do, what do these policies mean for, what do certain policies mean for ethnic minorities? What do certain policy proposals mean for the poor? What do certain policies mean for people who are not like us? We have to consider that if we're going to think biblically in a democratic society. But regardless of what we think of our current socio-political leadership, whether you're excited about the way things are going or whether you're devastated by the way things are going, regardless of how you feel, you are called to pray for whatever leaders have been appointed in your land, whatever leaders have been appointed over you. You get this out of 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge you that, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We have to pray for those who are in authority over us. We are called to. We want to pray for their character. We don't want to just pray for their competencies. We want to consider the character development of those who are exercising authority and are influencing things in, our, in the socio-political landscape. So that's one area we want to think about in light of this story. The second area concerns church leadership, and this gets a little bit more closer to where we are right now. That is leadership in the life of the church, a tangible expression of the kingdom of God like you are right now. How should we view leadership in the church? Well, ambition concerning leadership in the church is encouraged in scriptures. It is a good thing to go after. It is a good thing to aspire to. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, that is a pastor or an elder, he desires a noble work. It's a good aspiration, a good ambition to want to become an elder or a pastor. And you can look in other areas. It's noble to want to lead out in the church, whether it relates to ministry teams or missional communities or whatever the case may be. It is a noble desire to want to lead in the church. But as you read 1 Timothy, you begin to find a little bit about what God values in leadership. You begin to see some of the things that God values, and what you find there is, is not a lot of things described that you and I are easily impressed by. See, we're often easily impressed by qualities that are unimportant to God, qualities that God's not concerned about. We're impressed by things like popularity. We're impressed by things like humor. We're impressed by personalities. We're impressed by age or academic intelligence. We're impressed by whether someone's an extrovert or an introvert or whatever the case may be, the list could go on and on. But when you read through 1 Timothy chapter 3, you discover the things that God is really concerned about as it relates to leadership. And you find that those things are of little consequence to God and of little consequence to leadership in the life of the church. Because as you read through 1 Timothy 3, as it relates to pastors, elders in particular, you find that God prizes leaders who are willing to hold to the gospel, leaders who are willing to trust the scriptures and carry the truths of the scriptures forward, leaders who seek to lead their families well, leaders who are patient and self-controlled. Essentially, what you find are leaders who aspire not just to positions of leadership, but they're aspiring to the person of Christ, that leaders want to be like Jesus. And so they make it their ambition to grow in the, into the image of Christ. They make it their ambition to become more like Jesus. This is what we should look for in leadership in the local church. And if you are someone who aspires to lead, you want to become an elder, a pastor one day, or you're someone who wants to lead on a ministry team or in missional communities or whatever the case may be, make it your ultimate aspiration. Make it be the person of Jesus. 
Grow into the image of Christ. Cultivate character. If I have to choose between character and competency in the life of the church, I'm choosing character all day long. Because competency devoid of character is dangerous. I think we all can point to stories and examples of competency without character being dangerous for many people. What we want in the life of our church is character, Christ-like character. Competencies can be developed. Competencies can be taught. Competencies can can be uh, informed from the outside. But character is what we want to go. And let me say one other dynamic about leadership in the life of the church. I want you to know that churches do not exist to, to provide platforms for pastors. A local church does not exist to platform or to prop up any pastor's influence or to amplify any pastor's voice. That's not why the church exists. The church does not exist to platform pastors or leaders. The church, leaders and pastors exist to platform the church. Leaders exist to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Leaders exist to amplify your voice of the gospel in your lives and in your community and your areas of influence. So don't think the church exists to prop me up or any other pastor, any other elder up. We exist to prop you up, to prop the church up. That's why leadership exists in the local church. But then there's a third dynamic to this, a cautionary word regarding judgment. And I think this may be the real heart of this story. There's a cautionary word concerning God's judgment. Now, interestingly, as you read through the story, God's name is not mentioned a single time. You will not read Lord or Yahweh. It doesn't appear in the text. And so in many ways, what this story does, this story depicts what you and I might describe as a secular story or a secular society. A story or a society that's giving no regard to God, that has no concern for the Lord, that isn't asking the God, isn't asking God for guidance or direction. It's very much a secular story. It's one that pushes God out of the picture, or at least it seems to. God is not worshipped, God is not considered. And although the story unfolds according to what seems like the natural course of events, we are told in verses 23 and 24, we are told in verses 56 and 57 that everything happening happens according to the judgment or the curse of God. Now, it's interesting because you read through the story and you're not reading about lightning bolts from heaven. You're not reading about the shaking of Mount Sinai. You're not seeing fire falling from the heavens. That's not the way judgment is taking place in this story. Instead, it kind of looks more like Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For God's wrath, that is his judgment, is revealed present time right now from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Saying, look, there, there's divine judgment being revealed in the world right now, and it's not necessarily taking the form of lightning and fire and brimstones falling from heaven. It's taking a more subtle form. It's taking a different kind of path, and I think you see this illustrated in Judges chapter 9. And so what that means is, as you read through this story, we must consider how the secular life, if you consider yourself a secular person, or if you consider your society to be a secular society, I want you to know that that is all an illusion. This story tells us that the secular life and the secular society, it doesn't exist. Because God has never pushed beyond the influencing of a culture. He's never pushed outside the boundaries of a person's life or a person's story. The question is, what form is his presence taking? Is it taking the form of judgment? Or is it taking the form of deliverance? In this story, God's presence is very much there. His purposes are being fulfilled. Although his voice may be silent and his presence may be ignored, his purpose is being fulfilled in the form of judgment. 
You see, the people in this story were not aware of the spirit God sent to use the evil in the Shechemites' hearts for his purposes. They weren't aware of that going down in verse 23. Just like you and I aren't necessarily aware of specific ways God may be judging people today, which is why we can never really stand up because we don't have this divinely inspired narrator telling us that certain things are happening due to certain specific sins in a person's life or certain specific sins in a person's society. That's not really our perspective. But there is some form of judgment that is taking place in real time. And what you find in Judges 9 is that God's real-time judgment is working through the outworking of human sin and its consequences. God is giving people what they desire. If you want Abimelech as king, you can have him. It's going to destroy you, but you can have him. That's a form of divine judgment. And what's interesting about the story is that this Stories presented so that fearing such judgment should serve as a restraint on our lives. We should be afraid of the consequences of sin, the effect our sin has on the people around us, the effect that sin has on our lives. We should, that, our fear of divine judgment, God letting us feel the consequences of our sin in this world, that fear should serve as a restraint. When you come to the story, you find that three years pass, three years pass between Jotham's warning of judgment and the judgment that actually came. Now, three years of tyrannical rule is a long time. It may have felt like a lifetime. But God's judgment, though it may often seem slow and subtle, it is always sure. It's been said that the wheels of justice grind slowly but finely. And we must not allow the slowness of God's judgment to lull us or the subtleness of God's judgment to lull us into complacency. You see, God's patience and his long suffering must not be mistaken as absence and it must not be mistaken as indifference. If you remember in the days of Joah, Noah, sorry, nearly 100 years took place between the time God said a flood is coming and the time it actually came. And the question is, why 100 years? Why was God so slow? Why was God so patient? Why was God so long-suffering? Well, Peter would tell us. In Peter's epistle, he would tell us that God was demonstrating patience and he was giving people time to repent. He's saying, look, judgment is going to come, but it hasn't come yet in this form. So you have time to repent. You have time to cry out for deliverance. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance, saying we must not mistake God's patience and his long-suffering with indifference as it relates to our sin. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. And what's interesting is you read through the story, nobody cries out to God for deliverance. Therefore, no one is delivered. Nobody wants to be delivered. Even Abimelech, when he's lying in death, he's not concerned with his redemption. He's concerned with his reputation. And the question is, what about you? Are you more concerned with your reputation in this world or your redemption from this world? What are you really concerned about? And that brings us to the hope that this story provides. There is hope, believe it or not, in a story like this. There is hope because this story takes place in the context of a much bigger story, a much bigger story concerning human sin and divine judgment and the prospect of deliverance. If you remember, the story's plot is, it is carried along by Jotham's curse. Jotham's curse carries the plot forward, much like the curse of Genesis chapter 3 carries along the plot of this world. Our world is following the plot of the curse that was laid out in Genesis chapter 3. But as you read Judges chapter 9, you find no one calling out for deliverance. No one is delivered. But if you look at the big story, we're given ample time and ample opportunity to cry out for deliverance. 
And this is why Abimelech, when you consider him dying in the end, the only thing he's concerned about is his reputation, not his redemption. This makes Abimelech an anti-hero. He's an anti-hero who's selfish in his ambition. He's oppressive in his leadership, and he's ignorant of divine judgment. This makes him an anti-hero, and his negative example should draw our attention to the ultimate hero of the much bigger story of the Bible. When you read about Abimelech, you say, I don't want to be with a guy like that. I want to be with a much better guy, and there is a much better guy available to you. There is someone who's the polar opposite of Abimelech, and his name is Jesus. Jesus, whose ambition wasn't selfish. Jesus, whose ambition was very selfless. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus' ambition was to establish the kingdom of God in this world and to bring it about through his death and his resurrection, a selfless, selfless and holy ambition. Jesus was a leader who wasn't oppressive in his leadership. He's a liberating leader. He came to set the captives free. He came so that we might flourish, not flounder. He came not to oppress us, but to liberate us. That's the leadership of Jesus. So when he would look at our lives and he'd say, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Understand that he's making that call, not because he's calling us to go anywhere he has not already gone. He's calling us to follow in the path that he's already set for us. He's calling us to do the things that he's already done. That's leadership. That's influence. That's who you want to follow. And then when it comes to Jesus, you know he wasn't like Abimelech and that he wasn't ignorant of divine judgment. He was very aware of God's judgment. He was so aware of God's judgment, he would talk about it multiple times. And then ultimately, when he comes to the Garden of Gethsemane, what's he crying about? What's he weeping about in the Garden of Gethsemane? Why is he bleeding in that moment? Well, he's weeping and he's bleeding because he's aware of divine judgment. And he knows what's about to come down. And when you get to Galatians chapter 3, you're given an interpretation of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Galatians chapter 3, we're told that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You see, when you put your faith in Jesus, it's not that God's judgment no longer moves in your direction. It's that God's judgment comes. It just comes upon Jesus rather than you. In other words, you begin to take refuge in him. And you find in Jesus a refuge that is capable of delivering you. A a refuge that is capable of delivering you from divine judgment in real time and in the ultimate time when all is said and done. This is why we want to look to Jesus and take refuge in him. This is why we look to Jesus and say, Jesus, you are my Lord. You are my King. You are my Savior. This is why we look to Jesus and say, your way is our way. Your agenda is our agenda. Your purpose is our purpose. This is why we follow Jesus, because he's unlike Abimelech. And he's unlike any other person who has influence in this world. He's far superior than every person of influence in this world that ever has been or ever will be. So what do we do? We look to Jesus. We trust in Jesus. We believe in Jesus, whose ambition was selfless, whose leadership is liberating, and who is aware of divine judgment so much so that he says, look, I want to to deliver people from it. And so he would go to the cross to absorb God's wrath, to satisfy God's wrath, to take the hit our sin deserves so that you and I never have to, so that we can be redeemed and find our refuge in Jesus. That's how we live as Christians. You see, the gospel gives us a humble ambition rather than a haughty ambition. The gospel provides a way of leadership that is liberating and contributes to the flourishing of others. And the gospel leads us to live with an awareness of divine judgment so that we're sober-minded and we're engaged in the holy ambition of advancing God's kingdom and being about advancing the gospel in this city and around.
the world. Let's pray.